Well, today we've been remembering, haven't we? We've been thinking about the terror of human conflict, the cost, the price that is paid. But one of the most incredible um, messages of Scripture is that God is always moving his people forward, that God is moving us forward to places of peace. And the ultimate picture of God's word is not one of violence, but it's where every tear is done away with, where there is no more pain and there is no more suffering. Well, if you've been with us over recent weeks, we've had a look at three narratives from the book of Daniel. And they're all quite well-known stories. And just bear with me for a moment. I want to take you on a little trip into an art gallery. It's as if we've been in an art gallery in a room where there's these type of paintings. Now, if I ask you what that scene is, you can probably tell me, can't you? It's a farmyard scene. There is a building, probably a farmyard. There is a lady there. There are some chickens. You can tell it's a painting. It's not a photograph, but it's easy to understand. That's what the first part of the book of Daniel is a bit like. Most of the stuff we get. Then we come to chapter 7, which we'll read in a few moments. And it's as if we walk through another room and we're suddenly faced with this type of picture. Dali, the persistence of memory. And we get things like clocks that are sort of drooping over the side. And we have ants eating a watch. And it's all a little bit confusing, and we're not quite sure what to make of it. And we have to do our thinking if we're going to understand it. Because the way that Daniel is written, the first six chapters, it's about narrative, it's some dreams that are interpreted, and it's events that take place in time and space. As we get into chapter 7, what happens is we suddenly are faced with what's called apocalyptic writing. Now, apocalyptic writing is mostly found in the scriptures in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And I will get to the reading in a minute, don't worry. But it is very, very different. It's full of imagery. It's full of symbolism. It's full of terrifying visions. It's full of judgment. But it all points to God who will hold the victory. And it was a very common style of writing, actually, for about, three, about four or five centuries. And there are 30 or 40 books written in an apocalyptic style that aren't in the Bible. They're sort of Jewish literature, they're really Christian literature. But in the Bible, there are these two books that are God's word to us, the end of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. So what we have to do in order to understand what this passage is about, and I will get there, don't worry, um, is we have to understand the worldview that this was written into. Because some things we instinctively understand in our world, don't we? Some things that culture just, just teaches us. You know, if I put a limerick on the screen, there was a young woman named Bright whose speed was much faster than light. She set out one day in a relative way. You know what's coming next because you understand limericks. You know that it's going to go da 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 You might not know what the words are, but we get limerick because that's part of our culture. We get that it's humorous, sort of. We also get that it's about science. Do we, are we getting that? Yeah? You read that to a 6th century Babylonian, and they would be like, I have no idea what you're on about. Do you want to see the last line? <laughs> and returned on the previous night. So to understand what God is saying as we get into this passage, we're going to have to do a bit of digging around. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 7, 1 to 14, and then verses 23 through to 28. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. 
and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a beast, and which looked like a bear. It was raised up on its sides, and it had three ribs, and in its mouth, between its teeth, it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were rooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then Daniel has an interpretation of the dream, and we'll pick it up at verse 23. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Slightly complicated, slightly unusual, but there's a lot in there, I think, to encourage us as well. So let's pray, and we will dive into these words. <clears throat> yeah, Lord, as we grapple with your word, we sometimes stumble across things that are written in a way that is not familiar to us. 
But Lord, we acknowledge and we humbly submit to your word this morning. And we just pray that as we explore what this means for us today, that you will open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you through your word. Holy Spirit, would you just enlighten us today? For Jesus' sake. Amen. I was at my parents' house and went over to see them yesterday. And I don't know if you've um, been watching local news, but there was a big problem with the water supply in Stockport. And the water had been off for 24 hours. And um, yesterday afternoon, it was starting to come back. There was a little trickle coming out of the taps. But the chaos that that was producing was quite significant. You think if your water supply goes off for that long, there's all kinds of things that you, you just can't do. And life becomes very problematic. Same thing happens if the, if the power goes off, doesn't it? And let's hope we don't have to put up with that this, this year going through the winter. I can remember three years on the trot, I was wrapping Christmas presents and the power went off. I, I sort of got scared of wrapping Christmas presents after that. But these things happen in life, don't they? Sometimes stuff just happens. Now, if you were with us last week, um, I was mentioning that when people are surveyed, the most common thing people say they want to be in life is happy. That's what we're after. We're after this happiness, this elusive sense of well-being. And yet, time and time again, stuff barges into our experience that prevents us from achieving that in this life. But we feel the disconnect because we still want to be happy. We still want to have that feeling of contentment. Now, as I've been sort of thinking on that this week again, I've sort of been thinking, you know, the reason we want to be happy and content is because that's what God designed us for in the first place. God made us and said that the creation is very good. All the images that point us to the new creation, to the end of all things, say that the same thing will take place. We will get to a point where all crying and tears are done away with. But we live in the middle, and we feel the disconnect. On Remembrance Day, we feel that disconnect ever more powerfully, don't we? As we think of a world where we've just seen that globe there with all those conflicts, and there are many more that are going on where people are still fighting and being people of violence. So we can feel very disorientated. And then we open Daniel at chapter 7, and we get this weird and wonderful vision of four beasts emerging from the sea. And we have to set this in its original context and have a bit of a think about what this would have meant to the original readers. Otherwise, we can find ourselves getting very confused. Now, if I was Daniel, I'm in Babylon. I'm desperate to go home to Jerusalem. I'm desperate to see the nation of Israel restored. And I'm praying to God, God, would you give me something of encouragement? And I go to bed at night and I receive this vision. I don't think that's what I'd be after. I don't think this is the kind of vision that I would necessarily find comforting. But why does God give it to Daniel? Why is this what is here? Well, just before we unpack it, just a word of caution. Apocalyptic writing, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, are notoriously difficult to interpret. There are many different interpretations of these verses. You can read through the history of the church and find people who try to anchor things down very tightly, only to be proved without exception that they've got it wrong. And so whilst the text is 100% true and God's word to us, whatever I say, hold it lightly. Whatever interpretation we bring to these verses, hold it lightly before God. Just this week, as I was studying for, for preaching on this, I think I must have read five or six different commentators on this passage. Do you know what? None of them agreed with each other. Not fully anyway. So what I'm going to do is paint with quite broad brushstrokes this morning and give us an overview of what this passage is about. 
And I think the first thing we can see is that it's about the failure of human rule. Daniel has a dream. The substance is written down. And the dream starts with the sea being churned up by the four winds of heaven. That's basically the four winds that come from directions, north, south, east, and west, churning up the sea into this great storm. Now, I don't know what your um, thinking about the sea is, but I like the sea. I love the seaside. You know, I like to go and paddle at the edge of the sea. I like to go and swim in it if it's warm. Um, That was not the case in the Hebrew mind. If you were a Jew in Babylon in the 6th century, the sea was the place of absolute terror. We know what's at the other side of the sea. They had no idea. It just went on and on and on. Nobody had carried on going that far. They'd not got to America yet. And so you, you sort of think this was a place where brave sailors would go and lose their lives. So to see the sea being churned up in a dream immediately puts Daniel in that place of terror. And out of the sea emerge these four beasts. Now, they're they're terrible, they're they're mythical-type beasts, but Daniel was living in Babylon. And in Babylon, there'd be all these pagan idols around the place. So as soon as he starts to see these images, his, his mind, his emotions will be taken to those idols that are around the place of Babylon and the problems of living in a pagan world. So what do these beasts represent in the dream? Well, thankfully... The Bible tells us, doesn't it? And we heard that in the second part of the reading. They're about the various empires that existed in the time of Daniel, both historically, prophetically, it looks forward, and it even looks beyond our day as well. These are the most common views as to what the four beasts are actually about. Each one is scary in its own way. And the first one is about the Babylonian Empire. So this was the empire of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him from earlier on in the book of Daniel? And this empire at this point is on its last legs. It's going downhill. Belshazzar isn't really a full king. He's a kind of king regent. And things are not going well. And the empire is soon to be taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus will march into the city. We came across Darius, the king, a couple of weeks ago. He was also one of the Medes and the Persians. And this empire would summon up the most enormous armies that anybody had ever seen. And they would go and conquer people just with brute force. But they didn't last that long either. Because soon, somebody else called Alexander the Great appears on the scene. And he is a much better military leader than any of the Persians. And with a much smaller army, he will crush the armies of Darius III of Persia. And so he will take over an empire. Just think about this, if if you can think about a map in your head. All the way from Macedonia, north of Greece, all the way to India. He conquers that kind of world. Right the way down to Egypt. It's enormous, his empire. But it then splits into four, four much smaller kingdoms. And one of them, the Seleucid Empire, is going to cause the Jews a huge amount of problems, which we will see later on in the book of Daniel. And then we get to the fourth one, the fourth empire. Now, this is the interesting one, because whilst the others have all taken place and we've seen them in history, the fourth one does have a historical sort of interpretation. Most commentators think it it talks about Rome and the power of Rome, but that doesn't quite fit it. And also, if you read Revelation 17, these ten kings have yet to arise. So what most people tend to view this as is it's already happened, but it will happen again and in a worse way. There is another ruler to come, the boasting horn, the one that is anti-Christ, the one that will try and lead the people of God away from him. So we read this, and we think, well, what on earth do we do with all that? 
You know, sometimes it can be tempting to say, well, we need to do a bit more homework into history. We need to anchor all this down. We need to have all the answers. Is that what God has given this to Daniel for? Is this is what Revelation is about? Are these the kind of things we should be doing? Well, we're told to keep watch. We're told to be watchful. We're told to be mindful. But I think far more importantly than anchoring these kind of things down too readily is we're told to be faithful. We're told to be faithful amidst the challenges of the failure of human empire. We're told to use the time that we're given until Jesus returns to share the gospel. We're told to be people of hope amidst a world that is rumbling round and where there is chaos at every turn. Now, at first reading, I don't know how you found that passage when we read it, but at first reading, it is quite bleak, isn't it? I mean, it says Daniel turned pale. I think I'd turn more than pale if I was having dreams like that. But it's terrifying. Some of this imagery is terrifying. But I think it's an important point to remember. Human empires, nationhood, all these things that are in our world, they all ultimately fail. There is not an empire in the world today or a nation in the world today that hasn't arisen, hasn't ebbed and flowed, and many have then come to an end. Think about all the different empires not on that list. The British Empire, the French Empire, the Russian Empire, the Mongolian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. The list goes on and on and on. They've all ebbed and flowed. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in very similar ways, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are linked. And it's a dream about the kingdoms of the earth. But actually, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees the kingdoms as a great thing. The kingdoms of the world display uh, majesty and power. But here, we see they're things of oppression. They're things of destruction. The empires of the world are that which causes conflict. But there is a glimmer of hope here. The empires that exist now, the nations that are are oppressing God's people now, will not have the last word. The conflicts of our world that are happening at the moment will not have the last word. Last week, we prayed for the persecuted church, didn't we? And if you took one of those um, sheets home um, that had a country named on it, please, please keep praying for that country. And one thing we've done, we've stuck it, and we're praying for Qatar as one of ours, and we've stuck it onto the inside of our kitchen cupboard door where we go to get mugs out for tea and coffee. And every time we open the door, we pray the prayer. And it's really working well. So think of creative ways that we can keep praying. But as we're praying for the persecuted church, we know that actually what we see at the moment is not all there will be. The persecution will not have the final word. It didn't to the exiles in Babylon. It didn't to the church at the time of Revelation because God keeps moving us forward. Because this passage offers us more than human history. In verse 11, the boasting horn, the enemy of God's people, the oppressor is destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. And we see in verse 14 that that boasting horn, that final enemy of God's people, is only given authority to rule for a time, after which God calls the end. Now, I think sometimes we can shy away from thinking about God as judge. We can shy away from these passages where God judges the nations, because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to talk about. But when, on Remembrance Day, we think about the atrocities of war, we have to come face to face that love and judgment have to go hand in hand. You know, God cannot and will not turn a blind eye to the atrocities of war. He will not turn a blind eye to see them. And where is the pinnacle of judgment and love going hand in hand? Well, it's on the cross of Calvary, where Jesus takes my sin, 
He takes our shame, he defeats it, he defeats the powers, and he rises in glory. Now for the slightly more optimistic parts of this passage. We come to the scene of the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days appears in verse 9. And in verse 26, it says, what we're seeing is a heavenly court, this scene of judgment where God passes judgment on the nations of the rule. Now, this is no other than God himself. Following on from the Ancient of Days, there is another character who appears, the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Who is this? Well, it's Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Daniel 7, that phrase, Son of Man, is taken up by Jesus, and it is used 81 times in the Gospels. He applies it to himself and takes on the imagery of Daniel 7. And so the imagery that we have here, we're not catching a glimpse of, of Jesus coming as a baby in Bethlehem that we will celebrate in a few weeks' time, but we're catching just a glimmer of that glorious day when Jesus returns in glory. He calls an end to all the suffering, and his kingdom rule and reign is established. Verse 14, the day will come when every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Some willingly, some not so willingly. The reign of Christ that is in our hearts today will become the reign of Christ over the whole universe. Look at this from Revelation 11 verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. If you're in exile in Babylon and you start hearing words like this, words like verse 14, where it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Would that encourage you to know that what is isn't all that is going to be? To know that the trials that we face today are not the final word? To know that the things that happen that are so wrong in our world will not be all that there is? So what do we do with this passage? What on earth do we do with it? You know, I wonder sometimes, despite our best efforts, we'd much rather probably be in a nice passage in one of the Gospels or in one of Paul's letters, talking about encouraging one another than dealing with a passage about terrifying beasts. But this is still God's word to us. This is the counsel of God. And I think there is so much in here to encourage us about. This passage, you know, it starts off by brutally reminding us about the disconnect between the eternal reign of God and the reality of what it's like living in a world ruled by broken human beings. And yes, and praise God, even in the brokenness, we see glimpses of God at work, don't we? We see glimpses of God's kingdom breaking in. I hope you see that in your own life. You know, when you pray and God answers prayer, that's a glimmer of all that is to come. When we hear a testimony of somebody who has turned their lives around to Jesus, that is the kingdom breaking in. It's a testimony of all that is to come. When somebody is healed, when we find victory over a sin, it's the kingdom breaking in. But the reality is, on Remembrance Day, there are so many still suffering with the disconnect of our world. But for our fellow Christians in those 50 nations on the watch list, there is hope here. The persecution will not have the final word. For those in Ukraine who are being bombed, whose land is in ruins. There is hope here because war will not have the final word. Now these words set the context that life can be tough, life can be difficult, and we have to face the reality. But actually, 
they also remind us that God has victory. The victory of Calvary, the resurrection, the second coming, will announce God's final and eternal reign. Does that give you hope this morning? On Remembrance Day, does it give us hope that actually war is not the final word, conflict is not the final word, but God's eternal kingdom rule and reign, when we give our lives to him, when we be part of that, is God's final word. So let's just drill this down just a little bit for a moment. You know, in our own personal lives, we probably don't have four beasts emerging from the sea in our dreams. Um, We probably don't have that kind of terror. But actually, we do live lives that are beset by problems. You know, if I was to ask for a show of hands and say, just tell me today if you've got no problems in your life, put your hand up. If you're putting your hand up, you've got a problem because you're just living in denial. (laughs) Um, we, We all have problems. We all have things that we suffer, things that go wrong. We do battle in the world that we live in, battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We battle with sin. We battle with our own physical health, our own mental health, possibly with self-esteem. We battle with work pressures, with pressures of family life or the world around us, with economy and war, whatever it is. The message of Daniel 7 is not to say that these battles are not real, you know, put on the fake cheesy smile and pretend everything's all right, but it's that, that God has something else to say in the midst of them. God is always moving his people forward. So no matter how real the struggles of life are at the moment, no matter whether they're on the small scale or the big scale, they are not God's final word in your life today. No matter how real, no matter how big, they are not God's final word. Just a few things about this so what. You know, God is in control. God is in control of history. God is in control of moving things forward according to his sovereign purposes. So God is in control despite all the pressures of this world. Does that resonate in your heart today? To know that God has a plan. God has a purpose. God is in control despite all that rages around us on the global scene. God is in control of what will happen in the future. The world is broken, but God has stepped in in Christ. God's purposes will be fulfilled. In a sense, that is the hope of Daniel 7. In the midst of all that we see, God is still moving us forward. Will we be part of that hope today? Will you anchor your life in the hope that because of what Jesus has done, that his reign and his kingdom will know no end? Let me pray for us. Yeah, Lord Jesus, on this Remembrance Day, we think about your eternal reign, the promises of Scripture, that you are moving us to that point where your kingdom will be established forever and ever. And we just thank you that Daniel was given just a glimmer of all that was to come. And Lord, amidst all the trials of human rule, of human brokenness, of our fallenness, Lord, we we look to you, the Ancient of Days, the one who will reign forever and ever. And we say, just help us to be encouraged. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.